I encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, let's turn together uh, to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 4. Habakkuk chapter 1, there in the Old Testament, there towards the end. I'll give you just a moment to find your way there if you're using a pew Bible there in front of you. It's on page number 840, page 840 in the pew Bible. And if you found your way there, I encourage you to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. You can be seated this morning. Last week, we began by looking at the opening verse of this book. As we were introduced to this somewhat, in many ways, mysterious prophet named Habakkuk. Now, I would hope that you would remember from that introduction that we don't know a lot about this man. With the exception of his name, Habakkuk, which means embracer, one who embraces one. And remember, Luther pointed out in his commentary on Habakkuk that the job of Habakkuk was to embrace the people of God on behalf of God, to encourage them in the time that they were walking through. And we know his occupation because the Scripture tells us that he was a prophet. And so this morning, we're going to begin to look at his oracle. And that word again means burden. It was the burden which the prophet saw, which he was experiencing in his life. I would also call you to remember that unlike other prophetic books that we see in the Old Testament, Habakkuk is different. For in most prophetic books, what we see is the prophet standing up and giving to the people of God the word of God. What God has spoken to the prophet, that he is to go to the people and give on behalf of God. But what we find here in the book of Habakkuk is the personal prayers of the prophet. It is his inward and personal crying out to God and then God's response back to him. And as we make our way through this study, what we're going to see is that through these deep-seated and rooted cries of the prophet, that ultimately in the end, God brings the prophet to a place of ultimate trust and confidence in God. Last week, we talked about that there are many parallels between what we see happening in the situation of Habakkuk's life and the situations that we find ourselves currently in in our own climate. And the more time I spend studying this book, the more I see how timely it is for us as believers as we look around at what's happening in the world around us. As we move forward in this book, it's interesting because Habakkuk really doesn't lay out any particular context as an introduction to his prayer. The context actually comes out of his prayer. As we read through and we see some of the things he talks about, we're able to set more of a context to understand the time period in which he writes, the situation to which he describes. But the first thing that I want you to notice here in verse 2 is the heart cry of the prophet. The heart cry of the prophet. Because we see, we learn here immediately that Habakkuk is a man of action. He doesn't beat around the bush in his prayers to the Lord, but he moves immediately to the burden of his heart. 
And what was his prayer? It was a cry for help. Notice what he says there. How long, O Lord, will I cry for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. How long, O Lord? We see here that the prophet was calling into question the timing of God. He's asking, Lord, why haven't you moved already? Why are you taking so long? It's obvious by the words of the prophet here that he had been praying about this matter for some period of time. It wasn't that he had just woken up on a Monday morning, took a look at the, at the, at the Judah Gazette there and said, well, things are getting pretty bad. Maybe I should pray about this. He had watched his culture slide down exponentially. And as it had slid down, he had begun to pray, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he continued to see the degrading of his people. He continued to pray, and as things continued to get worse, he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed again. This long time of intercession without answer culminated here in the prophet's questions to the Lord. How long, O Lord? Because the time continued to linger on and on and on. The prophet feels as if nothing is happening. He says, Lord, I've called out for help for you, and you will not hear. The beautiful thing that we see here is that despite his uncertainty of God hearing his prayers, the prophet did not cease to cry out to God. He was desperate. He was crying out for help, and yet for some reason, the answer had not come. He really is asking the Lord here, Lord, don't you hear my prayers? And and if you do hear my prayers, Lord, why aren't you answering them? It, It baffled the prophet as he looked around and saw the wicked succeeding in his society, and he saw the righteous suffering. He could not understand why God was not moving to accomplish his justice. But brothers and sisters, we must remember that God is not on the same timetable as us. We want to see instant action from God. We want to go into our prayer closet, go into our quiet time, take a request to God, and we want to see him answer it immediately. And if not immediately, then within the next week or two. But it wasn't just a dismay in the timing of God. He's asking this question, how long, O Lord, will I call for help? But really, the prophet almost felt as if his prayers were just completely being ignored by God, because he says, you do not hear. He says he's, he's asking a question of timing, but he's also asking a question of, Lord, are you even hearing my prayers? Are they even making it out of the room when I pray? He felt as if some described as the heavens were brass, and that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 28, where it says, the heaven which over your head shall be bronze or brass, and the earth under you is iron. It's alluding to the idea that God was not hearing their prayers. And so it seemed as if the prophet, he says, I'm praying. And it's like the prayers are bouncing back off the ceiling. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever prayed about something and because you can't immediately see the response of God to your prayers, you begin to feel that perhaps God is not listening to you? Beloved, we must trust The word tells us that God always hears our prayers. If we are a child of God, every single time we pray, God hears our prayers. And God answers our prayers. There is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. God always answers our prayers, but our answers may not be according to our timing, according to our desire, but God always hears and he answers 
Remember, our prayers aren't changing the mind of God, but lining our will up to His. God has a perfect plan, and His sovereignty and providence are always at work, and we must trust in that great knowledge. When we pray as the prophet did here, and we cry out to God, and it seems as it's taking too long, and it seems as if He's not hearing and not listening to our prayers, we must continue to pray and trust in God's sovereignty. Just a few weeks ago, my brother-in-law, my sister's husband's father passed away. He was in his 70s, and he had lived his entire life as an unbeliever. Now, he wasn't necessarily antagonistic towards God, but he just lived his life just trying to work hard, raise a family, do good when he could, but he had no desire to serve God, no desire to follow Christ, no desire to go to church. Now, this man's mother, who was in her 90s, had passed away a few months ago. And her entire life, for 90-something years, she had prayed for her son without fail every single day that God would save him. But she died and went on to receive her heavenly reward without ever seeing her son trust in Christ. But she never stopped praying for him. Now, my brother-in-law's father had been sick for some time. And as that sickness continued to degrade away at his body, as it was becoming more severe, God moved upon his heart in a way that we can't understand. And he called my brother-in-law to come over to his house one evening, and as he walked in, he said his father just broke down into tears. And he said, I need to be saved. Just a few days later, he was in heaven with his Lord. My brother-in-law told me the one thing that his father said to him after he became a Christian, when he knew that his days were numbered on this earth, he said, my one regret, he said, is that I didn't do this sooner. He said, I wish that I would have done this sooner so that I would know what it's like to live my life the way that I feel now. Now, friends, it would have been easy for this man's mother to give up for other people in his family to give up. I'm sure that at many times in her 90 plus years, she cried out to the Lord and said, how long, Lord, do I have to wait? How long do I have to wait to see my son come to faith? Do you not hear my prayers? But friends, the Lord was doing his perfect work in his perfect timing. We must pray and never stop praying. Remember what Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians? He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. He would echo the same to the church at Thessalonica. Pray without ceasing. We are to be living our lives in an attitude of prayer as we see here in the prophet. Now, we can't see this in detail, but we can understand by, by understanding how deeply this prophet is crying out, how deeply this thing is echoing in his soul. That it wasn't that the prophet was just praying here or there for the nation of Judah. But he was praying at all times. He was always constantly going to God. We see here of a man committed to God as a man committed to prayer. He'd been praying for years and years, it would seem, by the context of this passage. And the prophet knew that he could not cease in his prayers because the needs were too great. 
The situation was too dire for him to stop. As he looked around and saw what was happening inside the people of God, inside the nation of Judah, the one thing the prophet knew he could not cease to do was to pray. It's been said that the typical Christian, on average, spends less than five minutes per day in prayer. Five minutes. Average Christian, five minutes per day in prayer. Can we imagine if Habakkuk had only spent five minutes a day in prayer? If we were to read this cry of the prophet and how he laments before God and cries out, and then we were to find out that every day the prophet only spent five minutes a day praying about this, what we would say to ourselves is, well, he must not have really cared all that much. He must not have been all that serious about it. Consider for a moment if your spouse or your child or a close family member was diagnosed with some type of significant disease, how much time do you think you would spend praying for them? Five minutes? Ten minutes? Or would it be a matter of prayer that wherever you were going throughout the day, anytime you had a free moment, you would say, Lord, please heal my wife, heal my child, heal my mother. Why would you do that? Well, because they're close to your heart. They're intimately connected to you. So you would pray and you would pray and you would pray. And the prophet felt the same thing here because he looked and he saw his nation that had drifted so far from God and it was so close to his heart that he could not do anything else but pray. But our situation is no less dire in the time in which we live and the culture in which we live. So why don't we pray more? We must plead with God for a heart that is so connected to his that we would be just as burdened over what is happening around us and so deeply connected in prayer with God as we would be if our spouse or our child was sick. Brothers and sisters, do we want to see the church changed? Do we want to see this nation change? Do we want to see our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our co-workers, our children, our neighbors brought to Christ? Although we must ask the question, are we willing to pray and to pray and to pray again? Are we willing to commit ourselves to the truth of God's word, to pursue him above all other things in this life? Now, the excuse that we often give ourselves, I've said it, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody else in the room without pointing it at myself first. I just don't have the time. But the truth is that we have far more time than we often want to admit to ourselves. In a moment of honesty this morning, I have been burdened of the Lord by late, of late, of wasted time. Time which I cannot regain. I'm not sitting here this morning lamenting over the fact that time has been wasted in the sense that I can try to regain it, but just to look back and to say, woe is me, Father, for I have wasted far too much time. And to commit myself before God that I will not do that as best of my abilities anymore. Time given too much to things that don't matter. Time given to things that have no lasting impact or significance. Now, you know what it is in your own life. I don't have to tell you. We're not going to take a survey this morning. 
But most likely, it's the very thing that you're thinking about right now as I talk about wasted time. The Lord's already brought it to your mind. You know what it is. It could be TV, could be hobbies, could be shopping, could be social media, could be the internet, could be any number of things. And not that any of these things are evil in and of themselves. But far too often, they become the excuse we use as to why we don't have time to read or to pray or to commune with God. While we aren't spending time pleading with God as the prophet did over the immense needs of our lives and the world around us. When Paul says to pray at all times, that means that when we have those moments when we're not doing anything, that we would go to the Lord in prayer and just continually bathe those things before God in prayer. But you know what we're often more tempted to do when we have a little bit of free time? And maybe this is just me. If I'm standing in line somewhere and having to wait for a minute, instead of going to God and praying about the things that are on my mind, I'm far too often to reach into my pocket and pull out my phone. I have time to do that, but I just don't have enough time to pray. Brothers and sisters, we must commit ourselves, as the prophet did, to pray and to refuse to stop praying until we see God's answer come. Habakkuk was not questioning the fact of whether God's justice would be accomplished. He was confident in that fact. Habakkuk was not questioning God's goodness. He was not questioning God's justice because the Scripture has promised that God would punish sin. He must do it. He is not God if he does not accomplish his justice and punish sin. The question of the prophet was not if, but when. How long would God continue to wait until he brought his judgment? Notice what he says there. He says, how long, O Lord, will I cry for help and you will not hear? This had been the cry of many of God's people throughout the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 94, how long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? Albert Barnes said of the prophet's words here, it is the voice of the oppressed against the oppressor, of the church against the world, weary of hearing the Lord's name blasphemed, of seeing wrong set up on high and holiness trampled underfoot. As we look around the condition of our world, the condition of our society, and more importantly, the condition of the church, do we have a deep-seated sorrow over that, or are we merely just frustrated? Or do we even care at all? Are we upset because we don't like what we see, or because God's name is blasphemed? The prophet continues here. He says, I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. He echoes to the Lord what he has heard numerous times before, violence. He's talking about the behavior of those people around him. And we can no doubt assume that based upon the cry here of Habakkuk that the situation was very dire. He prayed in such a way because he knew as much as the behavior of God's people frustrated him as a prophet of God that it displeased God even more. 
Because my friends, God doesn't just not like sin. He hates it. He hates it with a hatred beyond our understanding. And, and for this reason, the prophet knew this. He, he knew that God is angry with the wicked every day. He knew that God hates sin. And so for this reason, the prophet said, it's almost as he's saying, God, I, I've reminded you of what's happening down here. I've reminded you of the violence, of the wickedness, of the, of the horrible behavior of your people. And he did this and he sat back and waited for he thought, surely God will act and do something to stop the wickedness and the injustice. He waited for the salvation of the Lord, but it had not come. He cried out to God to save, to act in such a way to change the sinful behavior of his people, to restrain their behavior in some way, to bring them down out of power, to establish just and righteous rulers, but God's saving hand had not come. But perhaps we can go to Romans chapter 1 to understand what was happening here. Listen to what one commentator said. He said, Often when it seems to us that God has not acted towards evil nations, the first wave of divine wrath against the evil has already begun. The Holy One gives up wicked societies to uncleanness, to vile passions, removing all providential restraints from the wicked tendencies of fallen sinners. The Lord allows human depravity to run to its most degraded expressions until a nation is filled with all unrighteousness. When we look and we see a nation that is wicked and we question why God has not begun to move, we can go to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read three verses this morning. Go, I would encourage you to go and read Romans chapter 1 for yourself. But verses 24, 26, and 29. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips. Sometimes the seeming lack of the involvement of God is a sign that he is fully involved and that his justice is working out its perfect ways. When God allows a nation to continue in its wickedness, what he's doing is allowing the wicked to fill up the cup of his wrath to fulfill their destiny to drink it on the last day. He has given them over to their ways and his justice will be accomplished. I want you to notice next with me the behavior of the people in verse 3. The prophet cries out again in his prayer, Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yet destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. In our time, in our introduction last week, we talked about that one word, why. That Really that universal question that we all ask. And the prophet here was in a place of dismay. He knew God's word. He knew God's law. He knew the truth of God. But as he looked around, he saw the blatant disobedience of God's law. And again, remember, the prophet here is not talking about the secular culture. He's talking about God's own people. 
He's talking about the nation of Judah of which he was a part. These were supposed to be the ones who, because of their heritage, because of their knowledge and background, they were supposed to be the stringent keepers of God's law. They were supposed to be the ones who were set apart in their culture. They were supposed to be the ones who, when other nations looked at them, they saw them as different because they were obedient to the law of God. Remember what the words of the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 11, your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. This was the intention. God had separated out a people and given them a law that was different from every other culture on the face of the earth. Spend some time going through the Old Testament and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and read the law and the word of God, and you'll understand that this was not just some small thing that God had asked his people to do. But it was a big thing because he wanted them to be different from every other people group on the face of the earth. They were supposed to be obedient to the law of God. And as Habakkuk looked around, he realized that God's own people were wicked, that God's own people had disobeyed the law of God and had no care or concern in their heart. And prophet, uh, the prophet's first cry here is he asked God, he says, God, why do I have to keep watching this? He says, why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Every day as the prophet awoke and walked outside, he was grieved. Because no matter where he looked, he saw the people of God living in wicked and vile ways. It surrounded him on every side. He could see nothing but the wicked behavior of the people, and it weighed heavy on the prophet's heart. He did not want to have to look on the wicked behavior. He did not want to have to look on the, the disobedience of God's people. Brothers and sisters, it should grieve us in the same way to see the actions of the wicked, to see the actions of the wicked that are inside the church and also to see the wickedness of those who are in our culture as they propagate and celebrate and condone such deviant behavior. And this is a sorrow not out of anger. Sometimes our, sometimes our frustration with culture Sometimes our frustration with the behavior of others comes not from a deep-seated sorrow or sin, but a prideful anger because we just don't like what we see. Because it has the tendency to make us uncomfortable. It has the tendency to change the status quo in the way we've always lived our life. And we don't want that to change. And so we don't want those things to happen, but not because we see the sin and not because we're brokenhearted as the prophet was, but just because it's inconvenient to us. We need to have a heart that is broken over sin. We need to have a heart that is broken, that we desire to see nothing of the wicked in this world. We should be broken to say, God, I don't want to have to see these things anymore. Again, not because it frustrates me, but ultimately because it frustrates a holy and a righteous God. And if we are following after him, it should frustrate us as well. 
Listen to what Calvin said. He said, now this passage teaches us. Now listen to this clearly, friends. Now this passage teaches us that all people who really serve and love God ought to, according to the prophet example, to burn with a holy indignation when they see wickedness reigning without restraint among men, and especially in the church of God. There is indeed nothing which ought to cause us more grief than to see men raging with profane contempt for God and no regard had for his law and for divine truth and all order trodden underfoot. When therefore such a confusion appears to us, we must feel aroused if we have any, if we have in us any spark of religion. Those are some hard words that Calvin gives to us there. Basically, what he's saying is is, is that if we see disorder and contempt and wickedness happening around us and we are not roused to action, we are not driven to sorrow, driven to prayer, he would say, do you really love God? Do we laugh or do we cry at what we see happening around us? My friends, are we weeping alongside the prophet or is he pointing the finger at us? Our society is broken. Evil abounds. Wickedness is not just tolerated or allowed, but is celebrated and promoted. It should break our hearts as we look out to see so many people deceived. But but my brothers and sisters, what should cause us the most grief and sorrow is the condition of the, quote, church, end quote, in America. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some fine churches out there that faithfully preach the gospel, that stand for the truth of Scripture, but it is not the average. We have churches that deny the sanctity of life. We have churches that say that they not only support the right of a woman's choice, but they celebrate those who work at abortion clinics and they support political candidates who promote the continued legislation of murder in our culture. There are churches that support those things. We have churches who deny the sanctity of marriage. They support and encourage and celebrate the various LGBTQ lifestyles. They perform marriages for them, welcome them into membership, install them into ministry, all the while supporting those sinful relationships. But now there are also many churches who wouldn't support the LGBT lifestyle, but they still deny the sanctity of marriage. And they do so by dismissing the cohabitation of individuals in their church that aren't married by overlooking adulterous relationships and shrugging their shoulders, their shoulders at other immoral practices of their members. Why? Because it's the easy path. It's far easier to float downstream than to stand against the current. Brothers and sisters, it is grievous to see what is happening in many churches, many mainline denominations around our nation as they openly welcome and support sin. But even more grievous is the abandonment of God's truth in doctrine and practice. I believe it really all the way goes back to an abandonment of the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture means that God's Word is sufficient for all things in faith and practice and life. 
that no matter what we are dealing with, no matter what we're talking about, that there is an answer found for us in the Word of God and that God's Word is truth that we must stand upon. At many different times in the history of the church, there's been an abandonment of the sufficiency of Scripture. And what follows after that is a period in which times the church at large or, or many of the mainline people in the church begin to abandon truth and doctrine because they no longer believe that the Bible has the answers. Now, we've talked about churches that would support wickedness and sin. They have abandoned the sufficiency of Scripture because they don't believe the Scripture speaks clearly to those issues when it really does. But we can also see the abandonment of the sufficiency of Scripture when in many churches the service is more like a theatrical production than a worship service, where they spend three to four times more time singing than they do looking at and opening up the Word of God. And the prophet here is broken because this is what is happening in his own nation. They've abandoned the law of God. They've abandoned the word of God. And they're living in such a way as only to pursue self and what satisfies them. And the prophet looks around and he is broken at what he sees. Look at the last part of verse 3. He says, yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. One commentator said of this verse, he said, In a world where the rainbows of paradise lie shattered on the ground, where sin and violence abound, Habakkuk imagines a better world, one in which God will eradicate the destruction, sin, and strife in the present order. This is the persistent hope in lamenting prayer. The prophet points out everything that's happening in his society and culture. Wickedness there and iniquity really just speaks to general, uh, the, the general debauchery of mankind as they are uh, not pursuing God. The word violence that he used there speaks by an unjust action against God or other people combined with destruction there in the, in the, in, in the second half of verse 3. It means that the government is operating in a way to, um, to destroy the people or to take advantage of the people. Now, remember, what government is this? He's talking about the government of the people of God. He's talking about the priest and the leaders there, the king, uh, the very king Jehoiakim, who is ruling there under, under God's allowance. He is using his power and his position to hurt the very people of God. Strife and contention is from a legal sphere that even the whole political system was corrupt. The prophet is brokenhearted. The government is corrupt. The king is corrupt. The king's rulers are corrupt. And God's people are corrupt. Look finally with me at verse 4. I want you to notice here the aversion of the law. The aversion of the law. The prophet's brokenheartedness continues as he decries the perversion of the law that characterized the nation of Judah. He says, therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Now, we know from what Paul tells us in the New Testament that ultimately God gave us the law as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. God's intention of the law was to show mankind his inability to do good before a just and holy God. We cannot keep the law. But the law was also given as a shepherd to God's people, 
to separate them out from other nations, to help them do what they should do. And if, if they were to obey the law and strive to obey the law, they would be faithfully pursuing God. God gave us his moral law and the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me, not make yourself a graven image, honor your father and mother, no murder, steal, commit adultery, all of those things. If the people were striving to obey those things would keep them in a place where God desired and wanted them to be. But as the prophet looked out, he saw that God's law was just completely ignored by the people of God. Now, in his law, God had put into place those who were to keep law in order. The purpose of the leader were to punish the wicked and to celebrate the good. But as Habakkuk looked out, he saw the exact opposite happening. Wickedness was overlooked. It was tolerated. It was celebrated. And those who cried out about the injustice were persecuted themselves. Now, during the reign of Manasseh, several kings before, the nation was characterized by great wickedness. You can go back and read it. And it was so bad during the reign of Manasseh, the people were so wicked that the very holy temple of God fell into disrepair and the word of God was forgotten. Again, in that period of time, wicked behavior was not only tolerated but permitted. And the law was not just forgotten in the sense of how many people do, they just take their Bible and set it on a shelf and forget it's there. No, there was no known copy of the law of God to exist in the kingdom. This was only remedied in the reign of Josiah when he set out to renovate the temple. And during the renovation of the temple, the priest found a copy of the law of God and a great revival broke out in the nation. A return to the word of the Lord. And it would seem here that the cry of the prophet, what Habakkuk is longing for, because here he's asking God to do something, and it would seem to us from the text that what he was longing and asking for God to do was to do the similar thing that he did during the days of Josiah. That the law of God would be restored and that the people would return to an understanding of God's truth. Habakkuk desired to see revival in the land of Judah and not a revival that centered around a political figure. Because unfortunately, that's what had happened with Josiah. Josiah had brought about this and orchestrated this great revival, but when he was killed in a battle with the Pharaoh of Egypt, the revival faded away. Habakkuk here is praying for a revival, not one that centered around a political figure, but a true revival that emanated from the very throne of God. Revival is one of those words that we often use and pray about but I don't think we really know what it means. Now, underneath the baptistry back here, there's an old sign from probably sometime in the 80s here for the church. And in big red and silver letters on a four by eight sheet of plywood, it says revival. And then it has the dates at the bottom. Now, oftentimes when we hear that word, that's what we think about, right? Revival has a series of meetings where a church would say, we're having revival on this timetable. We're having revival the last week of June, this coming summer. But that's not what real revival is. Revival is not something that we plan and orchestrate for God. Revival is not a series of meetings. Revival is a move of God on God's own timetable where he comes and moves in such a way outside of our planning and our permission as to change his people. 
And oftentimes when we think about revival, we think about revival as an evangelistic endeavor. But my friends, revival is not first for the people of the world. Revival is first for the people of God that our hearts would be renewed and revived towards him. Now that does happen. There is an effect that happens to those around us. You can look back at true revivals in the past and you see as God's people are revived and brought back to the truth of God's word, that it has a consequential effect on the culture and society around them. So when we pray for revival, we pray for God to come move back the darkness of our families, to come back, move the darkness of our town and state. But why do we pray for revival? When the prophet was praying for revival, he was broken over what he saw in the nation of Judah. He was broken on what he saw in the people of God. From the smallest to the largest, God's people were acting wickedly in so many ways. These people who were supposed to be set apart from God, you could tell them no different than the rest of the world. And Habakkuk's soul was crushed with sorrow because God's name and God's honor was being blasphemed. When we talk about blaspheming God's name, oftentimes what we think about is using God's name in a derogatory way by saying, oh, my G-O-D, or combining God's name with the, with the word damn. And that is blasphemy of God's word, I mean, God's name. But God's name is also blasphemed when the people of God claim God but live in such a way as to despise God's truth and God's word. We blaspheme God's name when we live in a way contrary to the things that we claim to believe and to trust. And as Habakkuk looked around, this is what he saw. The people who would still claim to be the people of God, but lived in such a way as to blaspheme God's name. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time we were broken over our sin? When was the last time that we were broken in a true godly sorrowful way over our own sin? But also, when was the last time that we were broken over the sin of another? The prophet here is not broken over his own sin. We know that he, he was because of his godly relationship, but what he cries out here is the sin of other people. He is so brokenhearted over the sins of other people because he understands the consequences that await them if they do not turn back to God. Are we this broken over the sin of our own land? Are we this broken over the fact that inside the collective church today, there are many who are blaspheming the name of the Lord, that in the name of the religion are celebrating and accepting and compromising with sin? It is a blasphemy against the name of God. Just this past week, I saw multiple videos that were shared with me of so-called Christian pastors or ministry leaders who were attempting to explain how the church and church history has gotten it wrong for millennia on numerous hot topic issues. I find it convenient that as we now live in a time where the secular world is calling for the acceptance of these sins, that we now have suddenly have all these intellectual elites who can tell us how centuries of Christians have gotten it wrong, but now they figured out how to get it right. It's just an excuse for sin. And it's a blasphemy against God. Habakkuk wants to see revival. 
He wants to see revival come. And the true mark of revival is that it calls the people of God to a truer understanding of who God is. True revival gives all the glory of God, all the glory to God and not to man. True revival changes lives in such a way that the change is readily seen around them. Habakkuk is praying for God to do his work among the people of God. Now, God is going to answer his prayer, but in such a way that the prophet could have never dreamed or expected. We're going to look at this next week, but God answers and he says, Habakkuk, here I am. I'm coming to answer your prayer. And in answer to your prayer, I'm sending the Chaldeans, I'm sending the Babylonians, a nation far more evil and wicked than even my own people are, to come in and to bring revival to the land. But it's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. You're going to be taken captive. You're going to be exiled out of your nation. You're going to suffer. You're going to hurt. But in the end, I'm going to answer your prayer, Habakkuk. I'm going to bring my people back to me. Brothers and sisters, do we really want revival? Do we want God to move? Because when it comes, it means that almost everything and everyone has changed. It means that everything around us is transformed. Revival comes to transform the hearts of those who are supposed to be followers of God but have softened or weakened in the faith. Revival comes to those who have been pursuing it and praying for it to encourage them But God always changes us in the midst of His work and in His reviving. What are we willing to give up in order to see revival come? What are we willing to do in order to see God move in such a way as to change the church and to change our nation? We can understand from the heart cry of the prophet here that he was willing to do whatever it took even though he didn't understand, even though the answers didn't make sense to him. As the prophet watched in dismay around him, the law was vagrantly ignored over and over again. This is the reason his heart was so broken. J.B. Phillips said, the law always becomes paralyzed in a permissive society. And he paralleled this to our time. Because he says, we can see this looking around at our own land. A permissive society redefines sin. He goes on to say, sins that would have outraged our fathers are tolerated in the name of personal rights. But yet, even as evil prevailed, those who so rebelled against God seemingly faced no consequences. The prophet cries out, he says, wicked surrounds the righteous and justice comes out perverted. I've been encouraged by the commentary of Habakkuk by Walter Chantry. And he said this, after all is said, God has placed us in a corrupt and provoking nation at a time when he is permitting morals to plunge ever lower and permitting the church to become ever weaker. He has appointed that we live through such times filled with sorrow and distress. It is a time when God has given up formerly Christian nations to spiritual darkness and uncleanness. Why? That is also the question that Habakkuk is asking God. Why? Now, lest we think that the prophet exaggerated too much, he here in these final two sentences of chapter 4 makes the full scope of the situation clear. 
As he looks out, he saw that the unjust outnumbered the righteous many times over. They were surrounded, as it were, like an army besieged on all sides. Because of the vast number of the wicked, they possessed positions of power and authority, and as cases and situations were brought to them, justice suffered and righteousness suffered. I want to close this morning with a quote from Matthew Henry. And I believe it it surmises so well where our heart needs to be. And he says this, When God seems to connive at the wickedness of the wicked, nay, and to countenance by suffering them to prosper in their wickedness, it shocks the faith of good men and proves a sore temptation to them to say, We have cleansed our hearts in vain and hardens those in their impiety who say God has forsaken the earth. We must not think it strange if wickedness be suffered to prevail far and prosper long. God has reasons, and we are sure that they are good reasons, both for the reprives of bad men and the rebukes of good men. And therefore, though we plead with him and humbly expostulate concerning his judgments, we must say he is wise and righteous and good in all, and must believe the day will come, though it may be long deferred when the cry of sin will be heard against those that do wrong and the cry of prayer for those that suffer it. Brothers and sisters, we find ourselves in a similar place as the prophet, crying, how long, O Lord? We echo the prayers of Habakkuk when we ask, Lord, when will you respond? Why is it taking so long? But let us not despair. Let us not be given to defeatism. Let us not wallow in depression. The Lord God is not far from us. He has not left us. He has not abandoned us, nor has he forsaken us. But God is doing his divine work according to his sovereign will and providence. And in the end, we will be able to say, as the prophet does, turn over to the end of Habakkuk, to the very last two verses. Because in the midst of everything that the prophet is going through, I want his final words here to be the final words of our time together this morning. Yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Let's pray. Father, this morning. There are so many times, Lord, where we feel as if our prayers are unanswered, as if your timing is too long, as if the wicked prevail over us. And Lord, as we look around, we see so many things that we should be brokenhearted for. And we first, Father, ask that you would help us to be brokenhearted. Lord, help us to be sorrowful over the things that we see that blaspheme your name. And Father, let that sorrow, let that deep heart cry, Lord, come out in us, not in anger or frustration, but Father, let it come out in an attitude of prayer and dependence and lament before you, God, that you would move and act in such a way as to change the things that we see. Lord, we need you to move in the church. Lord, the church in America, the church in many places around the world, there are so many things that are a blasphemy to your name. And Father, we pray that you would move and transform those things, that people might be brought back to a true understanding of who you are, to the truth of your gospel. 
that sin would be pointed out and not tolerated. Lord, we pray for our culture, that as Christians, Father, that we would stand strong against the onslaught of the enemy. Lord, we do pray for revival, for your spirit to come and to move in such a way as to transform your people and to transform this nation and to transform the world. Father, we are so thankful that even when we ask the question why and how long and do you not hear, that your word tells us that we can have confidence in your providence, in your sovereignty, in your goodness, and in your faithfulness. Lord, help us to trust in you. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.